Lord, first this morning, I want to lift up another church. I want to lift up a fellow pastor, Rick Prettyman. I want to pray for his marriage, his family, his children. I want to pray that Rick is, is amazed by your grace. I pray that you'll guard his heart in Christ Jesus as you would guard mine and other elders and pastors in this community from the wiles of Satan, from all the things that can influence us that are not the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you will guard Rick and that you will just keep him in you, that he will stay in step with the Holy Spirit, that he will be useful, a useful instrument for the kingdom. I pray that his number one pursuit will be advancing the kingdom in his life, in his marriage, in his home, and in your church at Aldersgate. Lord, I pray that everything else will be secondary. Pray that we can serve as true teammates with Aldersgate and uh, with Rick and his family in whatever way possible, whatever way you'd have us serve, even if it's just serving like-mindedness and serving together in spirit. For we share the same bread and the same cup and the same Lord who's seated at your right hand. And we pray that uh, our attitude toward Aldersgate and the other churches in our community will reflect that sort of attitude. Lord, in these next few minutes, just confess um, fatigue and um, <clears throat> just fear that, that I could preach and not receive what has been preached. And uh, in, in advance, before this is preached, I pray that you'll find a home. It'll find a home in me and in our family and in each of these families that you'll guard us from just going through the motions and getting our church on. You'll guard us from preaching it and saying that we've lived it. You'll guard us from hearing it and saying that we've lived it. I pray that you'll find a genuine, authentic people who are engaging this like it's real life and treating you as if you're alive. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Turn to 1 Corinthians 10, please. <clears throat> the last few months or so, we've been in a series of sermons on the church. So far, we've built the definition of church from our Bibles. <clears throat> it's, it's an important question to ask, what is the church? We can make a lot of assumptions there. We can actually stand on other people's shoulders, well-meaning people, <clears throat> and find that we've stepped away from this. So while honoring the shoulders that we stand on, we feel like we honor them best by going back to God's Word that's timeless, that's consistent, that's true, and just unpacking, saying, God, show us what the church looks like. Show us who it is. It's useful for a number of reasons. It helps us examine ourselves. It helps us know, should the Lord lead us to plant again what we're planting? It helps us, um, should we need to be trued up ourselves, we can go back and say, well, what, how, how have we stepped away from what God showed us? Or where are we relation to where we need to be given what he's shown us? So many useful tools that come out of this journey. So far, we've defined the church as an accountable people who are led and leadable, taught and teachable, loved and loving, a baptized people, a supping people. 
the last couple of weeks, we've been considering the Lord's Supper, and we've realized right off the bat that it's so much more than an empty ritual. The Lord's Supper is a supper of provision. When God told Adam, he said, Behold, you may eat from any tree in the garden. Surely dine on all this ample provision. The spirit of that engagement was take and eat, Adam. Enjoy the fruit of my labor. When he told Noah, he said, Man, eat from any of this, including the animals that you just delivered, that I delivered on your boat. Take and eat. Enjoy the fruit of my labor. When we take the supper together, that's the tone. We are enjoying the fruit of someone else's labor. Lord's Supper is a supper of covenant. With provision comes responsibility. With full bellies comes responsibility to engage the God that filled those bellies. To remember that God. And to not just thank Him for the meal and move on forgotten. Lord's Supper is a supper of deliverance. Lips smacking behind blood-slathered doors. We looked at the nation of Israel on the night of Passover, still in Egypt. And we heard lips smacking as they ate herb-roasted lamb, as they ate unleavened bread, as they sat there with fork in one hand, or whatever they ate with, staff in the other, loins girded, sandals on, ready to move out, agile and mobile. And we realize that's the sort of tone and sort of disposition that we should have as we eat our meal, ready to go, realizing that we're pilgrims here, sojourners, not to make our home here, not to get too comfortable. But as we take that supper, we have that same sort of attitude that they must have had that night, or we should have the same attitude as we hear the wind and wing of the destroyer pass by. We realize as we dine on the body and blood of Jesus Christ, these imaginary doors, not of this building, but the imaginary doors of our lives, the metaphorical doors are slathered with the blood of the ultimate Passover lamb. And that's the only reason we're passed by, period, because of his blood. Consider the Lord's Supper is a supper of grace and mercy. We shouldn't be at this table. We should be dead. We should be punished to eternal damnation in hell. Let's just throw it out there. That's what every last one of us rates. No one's righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. What we deserve is eternal damnation. But not only have we been spared that, we've been seated with the victor. That's the scandal of the gospel. That should just leave you amazed. That's the disposition of the supper. The Lord's Supper is a supper with the priest of the Most High God is what we considered last week. To supper with the ultimate priest. Melchizedek, the things we know about Melchizedek, we don't know if he's human or not. We know that he didn't have a father or mother. We know that he didn't have genealogy and that he's a priest forever. And that Christ is a priest in that order, so we know he's going to have at least those things. But the thing we know about Christ as well is he is indestructible. And he's seated at the Father's right hand right now. So as Abram ate with Mel, We eat with Christ, the ultimate high priest who lives and is seated. And lastly, last week, we considered that the Lord's Supper is a supper of victory. 
after Abram went and whipped all the kings, Keterleomer and those guys with a lightsaber in one hand and a, a cane in the other, looked like Yoda. We realized that he didn't win the victory. God won the victory. And as Melchizedek ate with Abram, they were enjoying God's victory. And that's what we're doing. And we enjoy that death has no sting for us. Death is like a dirt dauber. Looks bad, can't hurt you. Looks like a big carpenter bee, like a hummingbird, but can't hurt you. And that's only because of his finished work. When we take the meal, we are taking in his victory. Today, we're just going to consider one thing. <clears throat> the Lord's Supper is a supper of fidelity. Fidelity is not a word that we use often. It might be a word that's familiar to you when you think about sound equipment or things like that. I thought I would pull up a definition. <clears throat> it's the word that I found best captures a parking place for this thought where we're going today. Supper of fidelity. Fidelity means strict observance of promises and duties, like a servant's fidelity. Fidelity means loyalty, like fidelity to one's country. You might write a song, I'm proud to be an American, if you have extreme devotion to the, to the United States of America. I wonder if there's uh, some sound equipment on up here. I'm just on the verge of feedback that's kind of bothering me, making me concerned. <clears throat> I don't want to pierce anybody's ears. Fidelity means faithfulness to your spouse. That's a word that you could connect with fidelity or an image you could connect it means accuracy and exactness. The speech was transcribed with great fidelity. It also has to do with audio and video, that what goes into the instrument, what goes into the recording equipment or the sound equipment represents what's intended to go in there, that it does a good job of capturing what was intended. A word that might be associated with it is a word called clarion, a word that clarion, you may have heard of a clarion note. It's a clear, stirring, definite sound. It's undistorted, it's undisturbed, it's unclouded. That's the character of our meal. I want to show you this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. <clears throat> first, of all, first of all, I want you to notice that Paul is referring to Corinthians as his brothers. He's not talking to just the Jews in the church in Corinth. He's talking to all of the people in the church in Corinth, which would be Gentiles. Only God could unite a Jew and a Gentile and make them in a church together. So he's speaking to Jews, he's speaking to Gentiles, and he's also speaking to us. God's using this to speak to us 2,000 years later. So we could hear him calling us brothers right here. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers... I want you to know that our fathers... This would refer back to the guys in the wilderness. The guys that we go back and look at so often. The guys that unfortunately are so left to the obscurity. That we need to go back and examine... Those were our fathers, and they were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. We considered that just a couple weeks ago. Considered that baptism is a great picture of what happened to the nation of Israel. All were baptized into Moses, their covenant head, in the cloud and in the sea. 
And all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The thing I want you to notice and pay attention to here is that they all engaged the same food and drink. When this says spiritual, this is not just talking about some imaginary metaphorical thing. When he's referring to spiritual food and spiritual drink, what he's saying here is this is provided supernaturally by God. It's not something that they cooked up in their oven or on their stove. This is God cooked, provided, God delivered nourishment, food and water. And nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. He's talking about himself, and he's talking about the church at Corinth, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The things I want to draw out here is the problems of the Israelites. This is going to connect to the meal because Paul connects it to the meal. And it's going to connect to our meal 2,000 years later. First place I want you to go is Numbers chapter 25. There are three problems that Paul drew out in the nation of Israel. The ultimate problem being idolatry. And he gave it some shape in three examples. The first example is in Numbers chapter 25. I'm going to show you three tables that the Israelites ate at. No, it's not good English, and I'll have to rephrase that. I'll I'll show you three tables where the nation of Israel dined in addition to the Lord's table of this spiritual food that was provided. The first table is in Numbers chapter 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. That's a pretty strong word, and it's symbolic, metaphorical, in that they were committing adultery with the surrounding nations. But it also means what it says. They had sexual relationships with these daughters, these ladies of Moabite women. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel, in this dining with their gods, Israel, in this participating in sexual sin, sexual uh, immorality with these women, yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Baal of Peor was the god of that mountain. There's a mountain called Peor. And the angel of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, and the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman... These women have, or these men, these Israelites have yoked themselves through worship of their God and participation in sexual morality with the Moabite women. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. 
So take in what, what's happening. Moses and most of the nation of Israel are sitting around weeping over what they're doing with these Moabite and Midianite women. And one of them just prances right in front of the tent of meeting with this Midianite woman that he's going to take back to his house. And when Phineas, my hero in this story, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced them both, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. So take in what unfolded there. The nation of Israel is whoring with the Moabite and Midianite, we find out from this specific case, women, the neighboring women. God is angry. He says, man, take the chiefs. You wonder why elders are so serious about what we do at Crosspoint? Look what God does here. The nation of Israel is sending, take the leaders and go hang them in front of everybody. God takes leadership seriously. I think his leadership to take leadership seriously as well. That he's going to hold us accountable. He's holding them accountable. And then here they are weeping in front of the tent of meeting. And this Israelite, who knows what his name was. I, don't know, I can't think of a Jewish name. He comes prancing by with his Midianite woman taking her back to his tent. And Phineas says, oh, no, you didn't. Phineas says, where's my spear? Phineas takes his spear and goes into the chamber where this dude went and pierces them through. They're in the throes of passion with one spear, like a shish kebab, takes care of both of them. A sin kebab takes care of both the Israelite man and the Midianite woman. I was thinking about God's, or what would likely have been the dialogue had Phineas actually shown up to talk with him about it instead of speared him. It might have gone something like this. If today, things that I've heard in the course of six years pastoring here is a reflection of what he might have heard. I haven't, I haven't speared anybody, but I've had lots of conversation with people that have been in a similar place. It might go something like this. But Phineas, you don't understand. I love her. Phineas, listen, you need to understand she is very sweet and thoughtful. And she makes me feel so good. Phineas, I know what God wants and doesn't want, and I know he doesn't want us to whore with the neighboring women, but this case is different. She's different. And Moses, by the way, I'm, or Phineas, by the way, I'm lonely. You don't want me to be lonely, do you? Surely God doesn't want me to be lonely. She makes me happy. And Phineas, you know how my Israelite wife is. She's kind of hard to deal with, and she doesn't even love me anymore. She doesn't talk me up like she used to. But the Midianite woman, she's amazing. She makes me feel like I'm something special. Phineas, bottom line, the thing I want you to know is that my needs and wants trump God's command. That's basically what this Israelite man would have said, likely, had Phineas stopped to listen. <laughs> Bottom line, what happened? This guy's a representation of the nation of Israel. And what they did is they traded the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And that's called idolatry. That comes from Romans chapter 1. That is idolatry. They ate at the table of sexual immorality, and in so doing, they yoked themselves, they bound themselves to the Baal of Peor. 
They might have said things like this, Phineas, you know, it'll be cheaper if we move in together. Think of the money we can save. We can share a car and utility bills. And Phineas, I have needs. And my needs trump God's command. That's called idolatry. They yoked themselves to a foreign god in participating in sexual morality and eating their food. Yoke means they attached themselves, they buckled themselves, they conjoined themselves, connected themselves, coupled, fastened, harnessed, hitched themselves, united themselves to a foreign god through sin. They ate at the wrong table. And Paul is appealing to the Corinthians, don't eat at that table. These things are recorded for your benefit so that you won't commit evil as they have done. The next example is in Exodus chapter 17. Turn there. Paul just shares three tables that the Israelites ate at or dined on. Here's the second one. The first is they ate at the table of sexual morality. The second is they ate at the table of quarreling. Chapter 17 of Exodus says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did in the sight of the Lord, or did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Paul calls that idolatry. They say, is the Lord even among us or not? How can he be if we're thirsty? How could God actually be among us if we have need that's unmet the moment we perceive it? He's quarreling. These guys are quarreling with Moses over water and whether or not God was with him. Is God even with us? See, we're thirsty, aren't we? And we don't have what we want, do we? And by the way, Moses, are you even God's man? See what this turned into? All because they were thirsty. What they failed to realize is a lot of what we fail to realize often is that part of the journey of faith is lack. I had a conversation with a woman this week, a friend of our family. Her name is Millie. How many years ago was that, Christy? She lost her husband. Four years ago, her husband, an army soldier, had just gotten accepted to physical or physician assistant school. Man, things were going their way. 
jumps on a treadmill one day, has a stroke, and a few days later, we're burying him. She's got three kids, little kids. I talked with her this week, and she felt bad because she was so down. This is four years later. She was still so brokenhearted. Her kids were still so brokenhearted. Her church didn't really understand, and I'm hoping that through her engaging them, they will, that they can mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep. She shared with me that in the context of her current church, that if you mourn about something and you hurt about something, then it's, you must not be a real Christian, or there must be something wrong with you. I reminded her of the beatitude that blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And I said, you mourn. You go right ahead. I'm talking with her, trying to encourage her. And she said, the thing that's incurred to me is the thing that is so repulsive to the Christian mind. This is her. This is this widow. The thing that's so repulsive to the Christian mind is the notion of lack. She said, but hope and faith is made of lack. The fuel for hope and faith is that you don't have something. She said the very thing that's driving her right now, this lack of a husband, lack of one that she loves so much, lack of a daddy for three of her kids, is the very thing that now is fueling hope and faith. If faith is the assurance of things hoped for, it's the conviction of things not seen. These guys didn't give faith a chance, the Israelites. We're thirsty. We want it right now. Our God's not with us. I've heard it from some of you. I've probably said it. God must not be with us because I'm not getting what I want right now. Not realizing that lack is part of faith. We should embrace lack. Lack is a blessing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's part of the faith journey. These guys tested God by implying that he wasn't among them and he wasn't, didn't have his hand on their leadership if they didn't have what they thought they needed. I'll tell you what, in six years, I've heard that before. And I know I'll hear it again. God must not be with you or with us because we don't have what we think we want right now. Paul calls that idolatry. They traded the truth about God for a lie. They traded God out completely and made gods of themselves. What we want becomes paramount. What we think we need drives this operation. That's idolatry. The third table that the Israelites dined on was the table of grumbling. Turn to Numbers chapter 14. As you're turning there, I'm going to share a couple passages with you that do a good job capturing the character of the nation of Israel. Let me share with you, too, as you're turning. As I read about how Israel grumbled and how Israel quarreled, realizing that they walked across the Red Sea on dry ground, realizing that their actual ears heard the wind and wing of the destroyer, that they actually heard physically the wails of Egypt as they found their firstborn dead. These are the people that saw Sinai quake 
and yet they grumble and quarrel and complain. The most troublesome church that I know of pales to the Israelites. I'm encouraged about the church. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit's presence in the people of God today. That we are not quarreling and grumbling like these people. But we do have much to learn from these people. Let me share with you the character of the nation of Israel. We'll get to Numbers 14. Just stay ready. Exodus 15, 24. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, What shall we drink? Exodus 16, 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And then chapter 17, 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And then Numbers chapter 14, which is a very pronounced picture of grumbling. This is after they sent spies over into the promised land, and most of them came back reporting that there were giants there. They'll kill us. Joshua and Caleb said, no, man, they're already delivered into our hand. Let's go. And the nation of Israel listened to the liars. And then all the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader who can go back or and go back to Egypt. Let us choose a leader. Because we can do a better job than God. And then showing that he is indeed the most humble man on the face of the earth, Moses and his brother Aaron fall on their faces and pray for this people and mediate for this grumbling, complaining, quarreling people. And God hears their prayer in verse 20. He says, I've pardoned according to your word, Moses, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who've seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. None of those who despised me shall see it. The consequences of their grumbling. And the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 26, and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. That's what they grumbled about. We're going to die out here. He says, Okay. You bet you are. The very thing you're grumbling about is the very thing you're going to get. And all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who've grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, oh, I will bring them in and they shall know the land that you've rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken surely This will I do 
to all this wicked generation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. You've got to hear the tone and character of this grumbling from this passage. Let us choose a leader, and let's go back to where we were. It was a known quantity for us. At least we knew what we were getting there. Here we have to trust in something or someone outside of us. And that's scary. We don't like the thought of having to live hand to mouth. I want some security. And at least I had some semblance of security back in Egypt. I don't like this thing where all I know that I'm going to eat tomorrow is what God provides. That's scary. I'd rather go back to Egypt. That's called grumbling. And that, Paul says, is idolatry. Their problem in the desert is, man, we have to depend on God. And that's hard. Grumbling is idolatry because it trades the truth about God for a lie. It implies that our God is forgetful, unfaithful, careless, aloof, and thoughtless. It replaces our God with a conjured up God that fits the conditions as we perceive them. That's what the nation of Israel did. They ate at the wrong tables. They ate at the table of sexual immorality. They ate at the table of grumbling. They ate at the table of quarreling. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. We'll pick up in verse 13. <clears throat> Let me go back and grab the verse before for good reason. Paul seems to, like maybe they were snoozing or tired. Now, this is not a sermon. It's a written note. But maybe he's anticipating by this point they're yawning. Um, we haven't done any of those things. I haven't worshipped any foreign gods. And Paul inserts this statement. He says, take heed lest you fall. If you think you stand, if you think this doesn't apply to you, take heed lest you fall. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's what this whole passage has been about. Now watch where he goes. This is what the point is. This is why it's on a Lord's Supper sermon. Flee from idolatry. I speak as to a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is, is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
Paul tells these people, he says, these things, these examples that I referred back to, Corinthians, were recorded for a purpose. They don't just make great veggie tale stories. They're recorded for a purpose that the people of God can go back and grab those things for our benefit. See, we have a double layer. First of all, the Corinthians had a layer to go back to, the story of the nation of Israel. We have the layer also that the things were recorded about the Corinthians as well. We have a double blessing. We can look back to what the Israelites did. We can look to what the Corinthians did. And these are things are recorded for our benefit so that we might not desire evil as they did. If we're paying attention to this, then what we get is a map through a minefield. If you realize that that's what life is, and you realize that God can provide you a way that weaves through those tragedies, those heartaches, those tables, then you're like, okay, I'm paying attention. The point that Paul makes here, the thing that he brings out most important is that when you eat and drink the supper, this thing that we've been doing week by week, you are participating and fellowshipping with the blood and body of Jesus Christ. That word, participate, is the word koinonia. It's the same word that we use for fellowship. You're fellowshipping with the blood and body of Jesus Christ. You might remember back in that Numbers chapter 25 passage, those guys that committed sexual immorality. It says they ate with that God, that Baal of Peor. And God said they were yoked to that Baal of Peor. That's the bad thing. When you're eating at the wrong table, you become engaged, tethered, yoked to that table. But the good news for the people of God, when we're eating rightly, we become yoked to the God of the Lord's Supper. We become tethered and tied and bound That's the good news of the meal that we eat, eaten rightly. But what Paul is appealing to here, his warning for them, is that the flip side of that is trying to dine at two tables. Because although we gave them three names, the table of quarreling, the table of grumbling, the table of sexual immorality, there's really only two tables. There's the Lord's table, and there's the table of the world. We're either eating at the Lord's table rightly, are we eating at the wrong table? Absolutely. Or we can be doing what the nation of Israel was doing and that Paul feared the Corinthians were doing, eating at both. You can't eat at both tables and eat the Lord's table rightly because when you do, you're provoking a mighty God to jealousy. Here, 23,000 fell by plague. Here, none of the men who've seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. None of them. Here, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. Here, Paul's reminder to the Corinthians, all of them ate the same spiritual food. All of them drank the same spiritual drink. Nevertheless, most of them were not pleasing to God. And most of them fell in the wilderness. So just because you're taking of this Lord's Supper doesn't mean you're taking of it rightly. Because we could all be sharing other tables. We could be dining at the table of the world. There are only two tables. And if you're eating at other tables besides the Lord's table, you're eating from the table of the world. 1 John chapter 2. Don't turn there. Listen. Listen. 
tells us what's on the menu on the Lord's table, on the world's table. Listen to this passage. This is what's convicted me and really kind of wrecked me this week. Here's what's on the menu of the world's table. 1 John chapter 1, 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world or the things on the menu. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What's on the menu of the world's table? Fleshly desires. Things that you see, that you say, I got to have. And things that once gotten, I say, I'm glad I have. I'm so proud of my possessions. That's what's on the world's table. To be driven by fleshly desires, by what catches your eye, and by pride in what you have or can acquire. Does that scare anybody else? Paul would call that adultery. It's eating at the wrong table. It's eating at the table of the world. I don't know anybody immune from this. I was talking to Brad about this earlier this, this week, and Brad said, man, that makes me uncomfortable. Brad was implying that you could ask him at a given point of time during the day, what table are you eating at? What time is it? How easily we can dine on the table of the world. It's a frightening reality that we can be driven by what feels good. We can be driven by what looks good. And we can be driven by what's worth your pride. And be eating at the wrong table. To be driven by these things is to be owned by them. To be consistently influenced by them. All of us are going to have the temptations. Every single one of us. Anybody says they don't are lying. Every single one of us is driven by art, is impacted by these temptations, but we don't have to be driven by them. We don't have to be owned by them. If, for example, you've achieved a high standard of living and our times are changing, and what drives you could be a desire to maintain that standard of living, that would be to be influenced by what's on the world's table. I got to keep what I've got. I couldn't possibly live in a smaller house. I couldn't possibly make less money. I couldn't be, possibly live on a smaller income. Meanwhile, John's saying all that stuff is passing away. Don't let those things drive you. Don't let them own you. Don't let those things influence you. That's to eat at the table of the world. Hosea says what this table looks like, this world's table, what it actually provides. He says they shall eat but not be satisfied. That's the reality of the world's table. Get all the world has to offer, and you're not going to be satisfied. They shall eat and not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they've forsaken the Lord to cherish. Micah chapter 6, you shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. Here's another in Haggai. You have sown much and harvested little. Here's what happens when you eat at the world's table. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. 
You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. That's what the world's table has to offer. Eat up. The world's table is impressive, though. Man, it's spread. The words that come to mind are smorgasbord and cornucopia. Just overflowing, ample offerings. Every delight that can entertain the eye. Every delight that can entertain the flesh. And everything that can just make you feel better about having it. There's so much to look at. There's much to want and much to desire. Much to be proud of if you actually acquire some of it. The thing that's hit me is the irony of what we dine on each week. Contrasting this with what the world offers. Pretty unimpressive, isn't it? A little piece of bread, and in our case, a little cup of juice, representing the blood of Jesus. That's all you got? This is all the church has to offer right here. That's it. What does the church do when we add smoke and smoke machines and light shows to this? We say this isn't enough. I'm saying this is enough. Because this is the character of the kingdom, kingdom of God. A contrary kingdom where the first is last and the last is first. A contrary kingdom when the Lord of this kingdom washes feet. This is fitting. A contrary kingdom where our king finds a donkey's colt to ride into Jerusalem. Come on, Jesus, you look like a goober on that. Said, no, I look like I want to look. This is fitting with the kingdom of God. Compared to the smorgasbord that the world offers, a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice is unimpressive. It's no small thing that the Lord's table is so simple. A wee piece of bread and a little cup. Nothing the world would be impressed with. The character of this meal is so like the character of the kingdom of God, so like the character of faith. Do you see lack? Is that all there is? It's just a taste of what's come. It's simple. It's unimpressive. It's the sort of meal that satisfied a simple man named Abram who walked by faith, not by sight, because if he was walking by sight, he would have quit. It's the sort of meal that fuels the worshiper in 2009 who walks by faith and not by sight because if we were walking by sight, we would quit. Unimpressive. Put it out to the world and say, hey world, come dine on this with us each week. And they're like, no thanks. Put it out to the people of God, the true people of God and say, let me add it because I know what it represents. I know whose body was broken. I know whose blood was shed, and I know really what took place there. I don't want another table. That's the only table I want. The true worshiper is hungry for this simple meal with God because we're living for the city to come, and we know what goes with this meal. 
We are to be dedicated, committed diners. There's to be fidelity in how we dine. We're not on some sort of progressive dinner, hitting one table after another and thinking about the Lord's table as an old fave that we like to go back to every now and again or when we have a special need. This is our table, period. Period. For the people of God, no other table will do. God's people don't belly up to other tables. God's people don't graze at other tables. God's people are dedicated to the Lord's table. Last thing I want to show you is in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is a meal setting. Jesus has fed the 5,000. He walks on the water, puts the disciples, has the disciples get in a boat. He walks on the water and passes them by, scares them half to death. He gets to the other side and he has these crowds, the same crowds that he fed the day before. They came around the Sea of Galilee to come talk with him and hear more and maybe eat more. He even accuses them. He said, man, what, you brought, what brought you here is your, your stomachs. You're led here by your bellies. So he preaches. Verse 32, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He goes on in verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my, food, my, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh... And drinks on my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now watch verse 60. Many of his disciples heard it. They said, that's a hard saying. Who can listen to this? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were, notice this word, grumbling. Ironic, isn't it? They were grumbling about this. He said to them, do you take offense at this? Verse 66, it says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him because of these sayings. And this is the point where he turns to his 12. And he looks at his 12, this important pregnant moment. And he says, guys, do you want to go away as well? The rest of these disciples said, uh, no thanks. Is that all you got? That's a hard saying. Unimpressive. Feed on you. Drink on you. Is that all you're offering? Jesus asked his disciples, 
said, do you want to go as well? Go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus asked these guys, is my table too much for you? You going to leave too? And Peter says, where else are we going to eat? What other table is there, Jesus? That's what he's saying. No thanks. I pass on the table of the world. You prepare the only table that truly satisfies. Peter said something I think we can say today, hopefully, is that we'll take the simple bread and the simple cup. We'll take the Lord's meal, a clarion meal, and fidelity. And we pray that by grace and mercy, he'll show us where we may be dabbling at other tables. Or where we may be bellied up to another table. Driven by the desires of the eyes and the desires of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. Lord, show us by grace and mercy. Bind us to your table, this life-giving table. Let me pray. God, I think this... um, message is hard to preach because it's hard to uh, hard to self-examine on this. I don't know that anybody is um, is unscathed. Lord, I confess in front of this people that it's easier to preach a sermon that you feel like you got a handle on. But it's not so easy to preach one that you feel like needs to invade your life. Lord, I pray that you will show us what other tables we may be eating at. Lord, show us what might be driving us. What desires might be driving us other than the desire for your will. Lord, I pray that you will bind us to your table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thing we added to the list of things regarding the Lord's Supper today is this singularness, onlyness of His table. So when we take this, I think we're doing a couple of things. We're asking for forgiveness for dining at other tables, and we're also praying, Lord, chew us up, seat us at Your table, and bind us, like the song says, "Bind our wandering heart to Thee." This is a big bite. Because if you knowingly are saying, no, I'm going to keep eating at that other table, then you better not take this. The next chapter tells us, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, tells us, Paul's writing to him, he says, you wonder why some of you are sick? (laughs) Like you could die. You realize that? You could get sick or die, or both, from taking this wrongly. That's why I'm standing up here leading this. I'm going, man, this is a big bite. (laughs) Because I'm saying, Lord, you're the only table I want. You're my only treasure. That's hard to say right now. I'll tell you, that's hard to say in my life. Some of the things Christy and I have been talking about, that's hard to say. And I'm wondering, Lord, do I mean this? Please examine me. 
Are you going to be my highest treasure? That's what this is saying. If you want to say that, by grace and mercy, Lord, make you my highest treasure, then let's eat. Same vein, this is a big cup. It looks small, considering what it represents, it, uh, what it means. It's a big drink. As we take this, I'd like to pray that God will bind our wandering hearts to his table. God will show us where we may be grazing at others. He'll teach us to be content in his all-sufficient table. Because, man, we can graze and grumble quick. What time is it? Let's drink. Lord, show us where we need to be convicted at a time of year while the other gods rage, while the other table is so spread. On my table, I see bike components, bicycles, whole bicycles, cool stuff for my truck, delicious food. Gobs of rest. I also see on my table kind of a desire to get what I feel like I deserve this time of year. Lord, I confess those things are on my table. On the table that I'm looking at. And I pray that you will pry my eyes from that table and place it on the riches that we have in Christ. I pray that despite the time of year, it's so much about stuff. Despite the time of year, that we can be truly satisfied in our greatest treasure. Lord, I confess, it'd be a whole lot easier just talking about all this than actually walking in it. I also confess that we can't walk in it but by you working it in us. And I ask for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.